From Sydney Opera House, welcome to It's a Long Story, a podcast exploring the stories behind the ideas. I'm your host, Hamish McDonald. My name is Sila Wacloutier. I come from the Canadian Arctic. And I, although I have been in uh, elected positions to represent our people, the Inuit of the circumpolar world, I now am an independent advocate on Inuit human rights. When I was growing up, I wanted to be a nurse, first of all, and then a doctor. But that didn't pan out very well because I wasn't very good at chemistry, physics or mathematics. Imagine a world where ice and water is your lifeblood, where hunting, fishing, gathering in the wild is your version of going down to the supermarket. That is the life of the Inuit people. Seals, whales, walruses, caribou, all part of the diamond. But this lifestyle is under threat from a rapidly changing climate. This past summer, locals have taken to wearing something altogether unfamiliar in those parts, shorts. Sila Watkutier lives in Ikhalid, Baffin Island. If you're looking at the map, it's right up at the top along the northwestern passages across from Greenland. If the Arctic is the world's barometer, says Sila, then the Inuit are the mercury. And Sila Wakotia has campaigned tirelessly to get this message out, to explain to the world that climate change is not just an environmental concern, but very much a human one too. It is work that has made a mark globally. Indeed, it's all her nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. Sila Cloutier, when you're not campaigning to save your people or to save the planet, what are you doing? What's life like at home? I am enjoying the view, first of all, which is a view that is um, very expansive. The vista there is just majestic. Depending on the season, it can be just um, ice. Uh, There's always a hue of blue wherever you go in the Arctic. It's just that beautiful, beautiful hue of blue. I am enjoying my uh, grandchildren, my grandsons, and uh, eating with friends, country food, uh, whether it's uh, the muktuk, which is the outer part of the whale, seal meat, which is highly nutritious, and caribou, which is tuktuvinak. Um, eating all of that in communal ways is what we often do together. And that, to me, is um, connecting not only to the hunter, but connecting to our cultural heritage and our ancestry. And it's a powerful thing to be eating from the same animal. And we do that very often. There will be people listening who hear you talking about eating whale who are horrified. We're in part of the world where it's an incredibly controversial uh, mm. thing to eat. Well, what does it mean to the Inuit? Everything. It means everything to us. Um, it is, you know, our country food, what we call our country food, such as seals, whales, walruses, caribou, all of those, are is a perfect food for people who live and, and uh, in, in cold climates. For example, uh, seal meat is just such a powerful food, highly nutritious in omega-3 and vitamin C. Don't forget, we don't have fruits and vegetables that we grow in the Arctic, although we buy them now in super in our stores. Uh, but for us, traditionally, that these are whole foods, organic foods, in fact, that has not only nourished us physically, but of course, culturally. What's the dish? How do you cook seal? You don't necessarily cook it. Raw. Absolutely. So I mean, t- many. So I mean, we can. For we, me at the table, sure. you and family and friends, <laughs> and you've got got mm-hmm, seal there. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, we can eat it 
cooked, stewed. I, I eat it stewed as well with perhaps even some vegetables. Uh, but traditionally, of course, we can eat it raw. We can eat it frozen. And we eat a lot of frozen meat, frozen caribou, frozen fish. It's the kind of food that is perfect for people who are living out in the cold, as I was starting to say, because it keeps us warm. Seal meat is so highly nutritious and the energy that it gives you that when you're out there hunting and you eat seal meat, whether it's frozen, most likely it is, it will warm you from the inside. And so if you have an enor- a, a large piece of seal meat inside a home and you're just devouring it, in, within half an hour you could have a meltdown. That's how powerful this food is. So, you know, the, the universe is just perfect in the way that Everything that you could possibly want in different parts of the world, you have at your fingertips. For us, our food is what fuels us, but it also warms us. Ichaluit. Ichaluit. I don't know if I've got it quite correctly, is where you live. You're doing well. Tell me why it's important to pronounce that name correctly. Because if you pronounce Ichaluit with a U after the Q, it changes the meaning to a very distasteful one. So Can you tell us what please, it means? Well, I don't think it would be really, really good to <laughs> do on hint. air. Just oh, hint. it's just, you know, because it's it just means that you haven't washed yourself in certain area uh, properly. No questions about <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> me. I, no questions about you. I think we're all safe and clean here. That's not where you were born. You were born in Kujuak. Uh, yeah. In 1953. That's right. Tell me about that place mm. because you grew up, you spent the first 10 years of your life traveling only by dog team. Describe the landscape. It was, uh, as I say in my book, it was almost kind of a magic really when I think back at those times where traveling with my small knit family uh, where my brothers were leading the dog teams. Uh, we lived in a, a Hudson's Bay Company post you know, when the Hudson's Bay Company from England and Scotland came over and opened up these fur trading posts for, um, in those years, we were hunters for our families, but then we quickly became trappers for fur to feed the global market. And that's how all that began in the Arctic. So your and life so, was on the road as it were. Well, well, not, that was before my time. That was in my grandmother's time and my great-grandparents' time. Uh, But when my grandmother was uh, a young woman, uh, a Scotsman came over by the name of William Watt, had three children, and then he was gone uh, when she was expecting her third child. And so um, she had to work very uh, hard to feed her three children because in those years, even families were having a difficult time trying to provide for their families, much less try to give extra food to a, a single mother of three children. She had to give up her second child to be raised by somebody else because she couldn't feed all three after William Watt left. And so it was uh, it was hard, difficult times. Do we know why he left? For many years, we thought that he had just abandoned her. And, and, and of course, you grow up with abandonment issues, you know, legacy issues of that sort. And you work, try to work through them in the, in the family system. But in reality, he had asked her to come and she said, I can't follow you in your, you know, white world. I am an Inuk woman. I have to stay here. I can't. When the Hudson's Bay Company people were uh, posted in certain areas, then they were transferred to other areas. They they just went. They had to. 
That was part of the course. And how much and acceptance so, was there of these interracial relationships? In those years, it was very uncommon. But, you know, my grandmother was a survivor and she hunted for her children until my uncle grew up to be able to become the provider in the house. My mother at the age of 10 started to work helping her mother in domestic help at the Hudson's Bay Company post at the store and um, for the families that were there. And uh, and so, it, you know, when I was born into that world in old Fort Chimo, my family had largely overcome the real challenges that they had faced when my grandfather was there and, and then left. Um, so what I my earliest memories are of this very close-knit family in a very humble home with no electricity, no running water, and we traveled only by dog team. And we hunted and fished as a family. And the community members that were um, still living out in the outpost camps, and we lived close to the fort because my grandmother was a single mother, and the, the, the families would come in to barter, uh, with the furs and, and so on with the Hudson's Bay Company for uh, food and ammunition and then go back out. So we would only see other families time to time until summertime came around and then everybody came and, and spent most of the summer in tents around uh, the, the fort where I lived. Is it a fun environment? Are you playing games or is it very heavily focused on on the work and the, the graft involved in that life? No, we had a wonderful childhood in reality. Uh, I think back to those times of, as I say, magic where things were, we were connected to one another as family. We were connected to culture. We were connected to community when they came. Um, and, and it was just for us, it, it was special. And those trips out into, you know, uh, traveling by on, on the icy highways on the dog team were special moments where, you know, you, you bonded with nature immediately. You bonded with one another, with your culture. And as the, the youngest child sitting on top of what we call the chamutik, which is the sled in a box bundled up in fur and blankets uh, for me and hearing the crunch of the of the sled going on the the icy highways and and learning the trust of your brothers that were leading you was 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 pure magic and then we would go and we would ice fish you know and we would stop in certain places and ice fish and my brothers would be hunting ptarmigan which are the small birds like a partridge and at the end of the day, we would sit around, make a fire or on a part of a shelter or perhaps even a tent on the side of the, the banks of the river that we would be fishing on. And we would be just absolutely enjoying the, delic- the, the delicacies of, of what the land and the, and the water gave you. And we would be just bonding in that way. Can you tell me a bit more about the traditions and the belief systems? What, what is the central belief system for the Inuit people? Uh, as a child growing up, I was already in what is now, I, I guess, a common for everybody is, is religion, either, either Anglican or Catholic, right. but mostly Anglican. Where I was coming from, we were mostly Anglican. So the conversion you know, or the, the, to be converted into religion had happened long before I was born. Um, and but were so, you still taught uh, an Inuit creationist story? 
Not as much when I was coming into because all of those things were taken away. Shamanism was taken away by religion. Throat singing was taken away by religion. Drum dancing, all of the things that were very traditional and sacred and in fact for us um, a part of our spirituality were taken away. And so when I was born in into uh, in 1953, uh, we barely talked about these things. Uh, we, we barely uh, were practicing any of those things. And if you fast forward to even just 20, 25 years ago, where even my own daughter has been part of the movement to bring back throat singing by learning from the elders that, that did maintain it but never overtly uh, practiced it for many, many years. We, we have been going through for the past 20, 25 years now, about 20 years, a reclaiming of all of that. And even today, though, um, shamanism is still a very guarded, in a sense, not re- uh, I don't know if there's a better term than secret, but it is very guarded because it is very profound. And so there's very few elders in the Inuit world that still hold those pieces, and they don't really share them. In fact, because that was one of the, the ones that was the most, one of the powerful ways in which we had that connection mm-hmm. to spirit that was taken away. How, how do you feel about that? Well, it's part of the history of our world. We, the historical legacies or the historical traumas that happened in our world where we were stripped of or attempt to be stripped of our Inuitness happened uh, in many different ways. One of them was the shamanism, and again, that was before I, long before I was born, and the throat singing long before I was born, all of those, in probably in my grandmother's time and my, my great-grandparents' time. But if you fast forward a little bit, the ones that I speak to more because I know more of those areas and, and because it was happening after I was born as well, the, the consequences of those his- historical traumas are what you hear about in terms of the Inuit world having the highest suicide rates in North America, the alcoholism, the addictions, the violence, the abuses that are happening there are a result of trauma on the, at the human spirit level. And there's many that, has ha- that have happened. And I write about that in my book quite so a bit. So it's a societal reaction. I'm, I'm interested in how you personally feel about that because even listening to you mm. now talk about shamanism, there's a distance and mm. clearly you feel something. I can see it on your face when you're talking about it. Yeah, there's a distance because we don't generally talk about these things, even in public still. Um, and I think because we know so little about the power of that ourselves, at, in my generation even. But for me, spiritual, I, I am, I live in spirit. When I started my own healing path in my mid-30s, um, I, I really started that entire process of healing and, and, and connecting to um, my own journey. If I could just elaborate on these historical traumas and just how much they have negatively impacted. Those are, they may be more modern in the way that that they have really stripped our sense of identity, our sense of self-worth, our ability to think and control and have control over our lives. And as a result, reach to uh, addictions, 
uh, reach to spirit in the bottle, so to speak, to try to get back that grounding or to try to alleviate the quality of our experience, which is not good. And we and and we we move in those directions. But the more modern ones are what I know more of, and feel more um, have the ability to ex- explain them better than I would way back in generations that I wasn't around and I don't know um, enough about uh, to be able to try to. Uh, I'm a person that doesn't like to wing things. So it needs to be real and authentic for me to be able to explain what I know and understand because some of these more modern historical traumas, I've been part of that. For example, in in the 60s when um, animal rights, very well-intended animal rights folks eliminated the sealing industry in Canada almost overnight, it, it took away what our Inuit hunters were trying to do in a transitioning world where the byproduct of the seal hunt and the leftover of the, you know, with the seal skin were able to market that. And many of our seal hunters were able to make a good living by that with that byproduct of the subsistence hunt. And then when the sealing was demolished, so did our own ability. Um, even though we're not commercial sealers. But with that broad stroke, it really had a negative uh, impact and ramification on the ability for our hunters to continue to feed their families in a transitioning world. We've had, you know, forced relocations in Canada that very few people know about where in the name of sovereignty, families were actually shipped up to the very high Arctic where they themselves would never have chosen to live. We're Inuit. Yes, we love the cold. We think we, we, we thrive on it. We hunt on it. But we would not have chosen places where there was very few wildlife and it was dark all the time. There were uh, children who were sent away at a very young age for school. I was one of them. I was 10 years old when I was sent away and I lost my language. I had to gain it back. Uh, there was no choice in the matter. There were very young children as early as four years old that were taken away mm-hmm. and put into residential schools. We're just coming out the other side, by the way, in Canada on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So that did your just, parents want you? Well, my mother, well, obviously my mother and my friend Lizzie's parents were somehow convinced that this was the right thing to do. They may not have been forced to let us go, but there was some coercion going on. And so because I can't imagine uh, any parent sending their child off at the age of 10 because of the, the trauma involved in being severed from your parents and what, to be raised you, by... What do you remember of that? Tell me about everything, the day you, everything. you were taken. I remember everything. I remember the air, uh, the flight. That In those days, when I was 10, they were those um, what we would call super constellation aircrafts uh, that would take about eight or nine hours from Kudrak to Montreal and then fly um, to Halifax where we were going to Nova Scotia. And um, I was very, very ill, motion sickness, to the point when I finally landed where we were going to, to be living for the, the following 10 months. I was in bed for three days. I couldn't eat. I couldn't barely move just because the entire trip itself and the plane rides, uh, the motion sickness really got to me. So that's I remember that like it was yesterday. And then adjusting and adapting to the food uh, was very difficult. Uh, I remember just gagging on fresh milk. We didn't have fresh milk in the Arctic, in the north. 
uh, we would have the canned carnation milk that we would dilute if we were going to have it in our tea or something else. But we're not necessarily milk drinkers. In fact, many of us are lactose intolerant. But I was forced to drink it till I was gagging because we were very traditional. I was a, a young child that was still very attached to her country food. And so that was very difficult. And then the strictness of the family that, you know, we barely knew them. They, you were they, put they, with families, not in an institution. No, well, the first two years. And then after two years, uh, we were sent to an institutional school, a, a residential school in Churchill, Manitoba, where 200 Inuit children were sent from uh, northern Canada. Was it a and sort so, of deliberate... Attempted kind of civilizing yes, of indigenous course. children. Of course, it was. It was in a sense uh, deprogramming us in order to reprogram us. So uh, that's how it went. So uh, two years uh, in a, in another province, and three years in residential setting, and then three years in Ottawa at a high school, and a total of eight years. And so did, that's. Did they recognize your Inuit culture? Did they recognize no, your background? No, we how were not. Did, we were not allowed to speak our language. Uh, what would happen if you did? Well, I mean, there would be some form of, of punishment, but the, the the residential school that I attended in Churchill, Manitoba, was not run by the missionaries. It was run by the government of Canada, and it was not as abusive as the mission-run schools. And we we feel, you know, many of us feel blessed that we didn't have to go through what many of the First Nations, mind you, there were Inuit that also went to. Catholic run and there was abuses there. They were more the minority than the majority. Whereas, in in our First Nations across the country of Canada, you can you can easily say eighty five percent and more, if not almost everyone who attended these schools was in some form deeply abused. These sorts of stories exist in colonized countries the world over. In Australia, surely you know of the story of the. The stolen generation. Yes. Clearly, there's significant differences in your story, but you see the clear sim- similarities? Absolutely. And the consequences are very similar as well. We have a lot more commonalities than we do differences as Indigenous peoples of the world. <clears throat> and, and of course, it is about uh, colonizing us. It's about cultural suppression. And the, the, as I said, the, the problems that we face today, the challenges that we have are rooted in cultural suppression. There's, there can be no doubt about that. And so, yes, very much so. We relate to one another all the time. I come to New Zealand, I come to Australia, and people say it's the same story here. Uh, we are struggling in the same way. And we need, we need to, and, and we have, I think, started through various venues, you know, whether it with, it's with our some of our international organizations, that we have been able to link up with one another and, um, and, and work together at some of those levels that we have internationally, such as, as the UN. And a lot of it, of course, is, is protection of our, of our culture, protection of our environment, protection of our land. Because for us, environment is, is much more than just environment. Uh, it, it's all encompassing. Our environment is about our culture. It's about our language, our traditions, all of that, which has great meaning for us. And and we we can relate to one another in those terms. You mentioned the sort of separation from culture, the removal of culture or traditional belief systems even through your childhood. It strikes me that through your adult life, you've had these jobs as translators, as educational and community advocate mm-hmm. as well, that in part you've been playing bridging roles 
between these worlds. How have the Inuit been able to return some of that tradition and culture? Uh, some of it easier, some of it with with great difficulty, um, because we're we're functioning from in systems that are still oppressive, and so we still have a fight on our hands. We still have, to, you know, here in this day and age, we are still struggling to find the right resources, the right infrastructure to address these issues at the human level. As I said, in our Inuit world, we are known to have the highest suicide rates in North America. Um, and why is it in, in, until 2016 are we capturing the, the full attention of what that means for us as families and communities? You mentioned, for example, <clears throat> trying to bring back throat singing. Right. How do you go about taking something from your tradition, something that is maybe in part lost or, or completely lost? Right. Bringing and, it back. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as I said, my, my daughter, you know, she's 40 today. Um, she started at the age of 17, 18 to start that movement, uh, her and others. How did she know age, about it? Well, we've always known about it. Uh, you know, here and there, we would we would know that there were some adults that still held those powerful pieces of tradition that were taken away and ripped away by religion and so on. My daughter has always been um, a performer of sorts. Um, and there was a time when we were going to Toronto, a big city, to um, showcase Inuit culture. And uh, she started to, uh, she was asked if, if she would become part of the, um, what they were doing, a, a traditional fashion show. And there would be choreography and so on. And there would be singing and, and, and that bringing back some of the tradition. And so that was a start for her, is, is her culture. She reached out to her culture. It embraced her. And, and she also uh, trained a lot with the elders in a little place, uh, a community called Pauvernito, uh, where she worked with uh, three elders. And they taught her and trained her and brought that back. Uh, th that era w was one of great pride for many of us. Some were like, I don't know, because there is still caution. There was caution right. 20 years ago about bringing some, some things back, and there would be some of that hesitancy. You where, see? where does that come from? From the, um, the fear that was instilled in us and that, that that was no longer a way of life for us and you have to leave that behind. That was part of the work of, uh, of evil. It was not uh, helpful and, and good. And so the fear still existed for some of the older generation. Well, what uh, is but, throat singing? How do you do it? It's uh, a vibration of the vocal cords. Traditionally what it was, when the hunters were off hunting, the, the mothers would stay and then it would become a pastime, but it would be a lullabies for the children. Traditionally, you're you're very close to one another, and and your your vocal cords are vibrating, and you're very close, mouth to mouth, and you're imitating the sounds of nature, of animals, of the the crunch of the the dog teams going on the ice. Anything that was in your environment, in your surroundings, you're imitating. So it's a mimic. Mimic, but the way that it's done, it is so visceral. It is so deep that if you have the right throat singers who are very well versed and trained, you can almost go into a trance. I, I have, I can close my eyes and it, you just are transported into what that sound is. Are there stories that you have tried to relearn or rediscover? 
you know, traditional tales that are told that speak to your culture? Uh, you know, that's one area that I am I'm very weak in, in terms of I'm not of that era that grew up in that. Um, but I know of many wonderful friends who are versed on wonderful, beautiful legends and the meaning of them because our legends were not just stories. There was a whole training in every legend that was told. Yeah, there was a great meaning. Oh, tradition. yes, very much so. And it was part of, of, of teaching you about yourself and how you work in the world and, and your rightful place in it. When we are hunting, we are not just learning the technical aspect of a hunt. We are not just out there teaching our children how to find the animals, how to read the conditions, the weather, the snow conditions, the ice conditions, the wind conditions, all of those things. We are not just learning, uh, teaching how to then be a, a really proficient provider and be successful in your hunt so that your family is is brought this wonderful, nutritious, succulent food that keeps you not only healthy but warm in climates of minus 40, 50 below. What you are being taught when you're out there as you're waiting for the, the, the animals to surface, the snow to fall, the ice to form, all of the, you know, the, the weather to die down for you to be successful is how to be patient. You can be there waiting at the, the seal hole for hours, if not a day or two, before it being a successful hunt. So you're almost in a yogic-like position waiting for the seal to surface. You need to be bold under pressure, under the kinds of conditions that we live in in the Arctic, to not be stressful about certain situations, to not be impulsive, uh, because if you're impulsive about things and fly off the handle, you put not only yourself in jeopardy, but others. So you're learning all of these character-building skills, life skills, and because the technical aspect is about how the world works and the character-building is about how you work. And and so ultimately you're learning sound judgment and you're learning, as I say, not just to be a, a, a natural conservationist but a proficient provider and ultimately to become very wise. Those skills, though, are very transferable to the modern world. So the kids, the younger generation that are making it in today's world have had the grounding, have had those skill-building and have grown up in that with that foundation are the ones that are making it better in the modern world because those skills are very transferable, especially in times like ours where we're very rapidly transitioning culture and we've gone through trauma, we've gone through a lot of that. But if you have the coping skills that have been taught to you traditionally, you are more able to embrace your life and get through the rough patches. And so culture as healing is the way that we're trying to go now because we've realized that that's the solution. But as we realize this, the very thing that we need to reach out to, the cold, the ice, the snow, the culture, is being negatively impacted by climatic changes. So this is like a second wave of tumultuous change. It's a second wave of trauma to our lives. And that I'm speaking more and more now about the connection between the human trauma that we have been through as a people, not just Inuit, but the Aboriginal peoples, and the climate trauma are one of the same.
and the irrational behaviors that a human being can go through and the the, the unpredictable ways in which um, a traumatized person without the help that they have needed to heal are reacting the same way that our climate now irrationally is, is reacting because our, cl- our planet is a living, breathing entity. In your journey through life, going from a translator in a hospital to Mm. an educational advocate, then a community advocate, to what then becomes this very politically active person, a very successful campaigner, it stands out to me that there's a a deeply personal moment that has a a big impact in February 1999. Your your only sister passes away due to a sudden Mm. heart attack. Can you tell me about that day? It it changes your entire world. Your in fact, your whole world stops. She was my only sister. She was my championer. She was my mother, really more than my mother. And I was in the middle of one of the big global negotiations on the POPs Treaty. I was just coming home from Kenya, and I came home at the time. I was living in Ottawa, and. Um, a couple of days later, a few days later, the call came and my sister was gone just like that. It was her oldest daughter. And hearing her voice that early in the morning, I knew something was terribly wrong. Um, so I'm, you know, just spinning in my head thinking Bridget must be very busy with her son or somebody else and Pam's calling only to hear at the end of, you know, a couple of sentences that Pam said, my mom has gone. She had just died. Um, from a massive heart attack with no warning. Yeah, I mean, Um, my immediate maternal instinct, though, as shocking as that was, was to want to hold Pam, who uh, was in shock, obviously. But the immediate um, strength that came into her saying... I didn't want anyone else to call you. Um, so I'm calling you to say that your your sister's gone. I was in shock for weeks, if not months, but I had to continue the work. I couldn't stop. You don't shut the, the door on the world or you don't stop your life. You just carry on. But it changed my, you know, eventually, of course, it changed my perspective on how the world there is an order to it somehow, even in loss, even in chaos. And so all of these losses um, did, you, it does something to you. And you, you either uh, lose it and you, 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 it breaks you or it changes you. And it changes your perspective and it gives you a sense of purpose, I guess, in the absence of a better word. And all of the, the feelings that come in order to develop those very skills that I lost as a child or didn't have because I was sent away so young, you learn them through the losses. You develop the skills to be able to overcome obstacles. Uh, you become stronger in your conviction um, to, to carry forth the path that you think you are meant to carry. And the sense of responsibility kicks in even stronger in terms of trying to get the message out that life has a meaning and that the, the connection that we have to one another 
is important, whether it's to each other as Indigenous peoples and it, or, or as peoples, period. And you yeah. go on to start a petition. Yes, a legal, the, legal petition. To the Inter-American Council on Human Rights. Mm. Calling for what? Well, it was, it was a legal petition calling for a declaration by the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, Washington-based, that the inaction of the United States of America in those years, it was the, the, the Bush administration, who was staunchly against lowering their greenhouse gas emissions if one American was going to lose a job over changing their environmental or economic policies. So it was asking for a declaration that indeed the inaction of the United States of America was violating the human rights of the Inuit of the circumpolar world by not addressing these issues of greenhouse gas emissions. We worked very hard with, in fact, American legal teams. Uh, we hired two young American university students who, through their own fundraising and sponsorship, wanted to help us for free. I said, absolutely, if it's free, we can use all the resources we can get. And uh, for two, two years, we prepared a legal petition that would then be brought to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights in Washington, D.C., and hopefully be declared that indeed the, the inaction of uh, the United States was a violation of the right, the human rights. And so we made that, that pioneering work was making that connection for the first time really in legal terms, the connection between climate change and human rights. It, it was this work that led to many awards mm. and much global recognition, among that a nomination for the Nobel Peace Prize alongside right. Al Gore. That's right. You have, though, put this issue on the map, not just as an environmental issue, but as a human rights yes. issue. Nonetheless, the world still struggles to embrace it. Not as much as in those years, uh, but you're right. There is still much to do to, be, to, to embrace that um, because people have, have not fully yet embraced that in terms of the language of the conventions that are negotiated globally, for example, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change that happens every year in another country. We're up to, I think, COP, what we call the Conference of the Parties. COP 22 is coming up, I think, in Morocco, I believe, Marrakesh. Um, so it's been a while since we, in, in Montreal in 2005 when we launched the petition. However, let me go back just a minute here. Yes, the world has not fully embraced that where it, it really is tangible and the language is, is strong in these conventions to make effective change and, and to actually say, yes, this is a human rights issue. However, even though the, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights did not move forward with the Inuit petition, we changed the discourse on this issue from one that was very much a scientific issue, political issue, economic issue, a very academic issue, to one of the, of the human dimension. And I think we helped the world to see that this was just not about ice and polar bears. It was about people. I was in Paris last year during the COP uh, meetings there. And, um, you know, people are still, you know, we, we take a few steps forward and then the, 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 the next COP, we take some backwards. And so the issue in the language of human rights gets into the preambular language of that convention, but not necessarily in the operative text where it has teeth, more teeth. And so 
we have a ways to go yet, as I, I do think that. But when more and more of the world are impacted by not just climate change anymore, as I say, it's climate trauma, we will see perhaps more action, but then it will be rather late for some. The small girl wrapped in the homemade coats in the back of the sled has now seen enormous change in the course of her own lifetime, mm. both culturally but also in terms of the, the global environment. Does she have optimism today about what lies ahead? I wouldn't fly 30 hours to Australia <laughs> if I wasn't optimistic that civil society and, and the, the coming together of a people, uh, the, the common humanity that we are, where the Arctic is that cooling system, the air conditioner, if you will, that's breaking down, is impacting many other places in the world, including Australia. If I didn't think that that connection was strong, where we can come together as a common humanity and really keep pushing the right leaders to do the right thing, um, I wouldn't be here speaking to you today. We have to imagine that there will be a better world. We have to imagine that there, that ice will stay intact if we do the right thing. Keep us on the ice up there. Keep us being the guardians and the sentinels that signal to the world that our planet is melting because we rely on that ice and cold. We witness the most minute of changes. If you keep us there, we protect the entire planet. So as you protect that ice, we protect the planet as a whole. And so it, it's, it's that that keeps me uh, going and keeps me optimistic that our children and grandchildren, their children, are going to have a world that can still be um, livable, and lovable and all the great things that it offers. And I hope that my grandson and their children will, will have, be able to have that choice and that foundation that I started with as a very young child on top of that chamutik in the box as I learned to bond with the cold and the ice and the snow. Sila Wonklutia, it's been fascinating to hear your story and a delight to be in conversation. Oh, it's been a real pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. Nakormik, in my language. Nakormik. Thank you. It's a Long Story is recorded at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Talks and Ideas program headed by Anne Mosser. Our show is hosted by me, Hamish MacDonald, and is produced and edited by Cara Jensen McKinnon. Our theme music is by Rishikesh Hirwe. We're recorded by Jason Blackwell and Oliver Brighton, mixed by Brendan Zacharias, and our executive producer is Danielle Harvey.